Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Teaching is said and done uh, here tonight. And so Revelation chapter number 14, it's been about three weeks since we've been here. We can't have these three-week spells. We'll never get through, folks. Amen. Uh, Revelations 14. I don't know about you, but just even just from what we did, the first part of Revelation 14, I almost had to re- reacquaint myself, it seemed like, uh, to be able to just go on from there. Revelation 14, starting with verse number 6, and we'll read a few verses, and then you'll be able to be seated. Uh, we are still talking about a glimpse of the end. This is part 13b. Starting with verse number 6, the Bible says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the foundation, fountains rather of waters. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Again, we're going to talk about a glimpse of the end. I'm asking you to help us pray to get our minds engaged here tonight. Father, I love you. God, help us, O Lord, to engage our minds and our spirits in the next little while, Lord, through the teaching of your word. You're able to help us, Lord, this evening. God, grant understanding and enlightenment. I pray, O Lord, today, God, that you're able, Lord, to speak to us through your word. God, if anything, God, be a warning, Lord, or a point of information, Lord Jesus, for those things, Lord, that are, God, yet to come. God, we'll thank you and we'll praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you accomplished, Lord, through and by your word. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated this evening in Jesus' name. In these verses of Scripture tonight, we come across uh, three angels, three angels in this portion of Scripture, of John's vision. And again, I think it's important because most of us have probably forgotten, including me, that uh, the items in this chapter, chapter number 14, are being spoken as though they are already finished, yet they are still yet to take place but they're spoken in a manner and a term that they are a finished event, but they're still event yet to take place in the timeline of life. And so these different angels that come on the scene uh, come with various different declarations. Uh, they come with different purposes. And that does not mean, though, that these things, again, have already taken place. They are things that are still approaching, still things that will come and will happen. And the first angel that we are approached with in these verses of Scripture, the first angel, the three that we meet tonight, the first angel comes preaching, the Bible says, the everlasting gospel. The second angel that we'll meet this evening comes declaring the fall of Babylon. 
Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And the third angel will come declaring what the consequences are for those who worship the beast and take his mark. And so the first angel that comes, comes preaching the everlasting gospel. And just right away, this tends to support uh, something that we have already taught, but this tends to support the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church because if the church was still present, she would still be the one proclaiming and preaching the gospel. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is, you're right in Revelation 14, this is the first and the only place in the Bible that I know of where an angel is told to preach the gospel. The only place I know of in Scripture that an angel is told to preach the gospel. We know that during the lifetimes of the disciples in Jesus' earthly ministry that he told them, uh, Mark 16, 15, he told them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel uh, to every creature. But here in Revelation, it is an angel that is dispatched to preach the gospel, to spread the message on the earth to, the Bible says, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. For that matter, if you'll remember back with me in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 10, whenever Cornelius uh, saw in a vision, he was a devout man of the Italian band, he saw in a vision an angel of the Lord coming to him in Acts 10, and he was told by the angel uh, to send for the apostle Peter and that the apostle Peter would tell him what he ought to do. We know he was going to tell him what he ought to do concerning salvation in other words the angel that came and visited Cornelius didn't tell him how to be saved nor necessarily could he but he was told to go find Peter and that Peter would tell him what needed to be done the Bible says in first Peter 1 and verse number 12 unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. In other words, in 1 Peter chapter 1, the context of the scriptures of 1 Peter 1 is concerning and about salvation. And so the writer is telling us those of old, even the old prophets in the Old Testament, wrote about salvation but they were writing about something they did not understand. They were writing about something that they didn't even experience, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. They were writing about salvation, things they didn't understand or didn't experience, but yet they were writing even in the Old Testament for our benefit. They did minister things that were reported to us now that he was even preached by the gospel for our benefit. And so the salvation that they wrote about was for our benefit, for our understanding, Although they were writing, they didn't understand it, nor were partakers of it. And this salvation had been granted to us. And then as a side note, the last phrase here in this verse is, angels desire to look into this, this what? This salvation topic, this gospel message, this gospel topic. It's the story of redemption that angels even desire to look into. Because angels don't get redeemed. There is no place for the fallen angels to get back right with God. There is no redemption. There is no salvation for them. So they desire 
to look into this thing called salvation and the gospel message. So knowing this tonight, it's very peculiar that in Revelation 14, this first angel that we're met with this evening is an angel that's proclaiming something that they know nothing about. They're proclaiming the gospel. Uh, they're they're kind of in the lot similar to the Old Testament prophets. They're, they're talking about something uh, that they themselves don't understand or they have a desire to look into but their simple task was this, to proclaim the message, proclaim the everlasting gospel. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, years prior to this moment that John is writing this, in the, the vision that he has seen, prior to this vision, years prior to this, Paul had already conditioned the people that he was speaking to of a day and an hour when an angel would come bearing the gospel. Because the Bible says in Galatians 1.8, the apostle says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And so the angel in Revelation, of course, is not preaching another gospel. He's preaching the everlasting gospel. He's preaching, and, and might I say, denote the word it's everlasting. The gospel that was good then is the gospel that's good now. It, it's everlasting. It's not changed. It's an everlasting gospel. As a matter of fact, verse number 7 tells us, and it allows us to hear in part what this everlasting gospel consisted of, because he speaks to them, saying what the angel said with a loud voice. The angel said with a loud voice. He, it consisted of a call to all now, kindred, nation, tongue, people. He says, fear God. Give glory to God. Worship God, the Creator. So it serves to reason this evening that being that during the Great Tribulation, during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be people whose hearts are going to be struck with fear as a result of the Antichrist and the false prophet, as a result of their schemes and their tactics and their demands that if you don't take the mark or the name or the number of the name that you won't have the ability to buy or sell. No doubt that will strike fear into the hearts of many people. Uh, they will fear not giving glory to the image of the beast because the Bible says if you don't do that, that, that then those individuals would die. They would otherwise lose their lives if they didn't give glory to the image of the beast. So there's going to be a lot of fear during those days of the great tribulation, but the angel is coming, proclaiming during that time, don't, don't be fearing man or the Antichrist or any of the other things, but fear God. If you're going to fear something, you need to be fearing God. Don't, don't fear losing your life to hold into that which is true. Fear God. As a matter of fact, there seems to be a little new weight or a new perspective that's put on uh, the gospel writer Mark in Mark 8 whenever it speaks about life or giving life or saving life, especially whenever it comes to the times of the Great Tribulation, if we would think of it in the terms of the Great Tribulation of Mark 8.35, the writer said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Now that's absolutely true for the Great Tribulation time. If you try to save your life by worshiping the image of the beast, you have set yourself up for the lake of fire without any returning, without any amends, without any amends, any uh, Jews living during that time that, that wished to save their life by bowing down to the image of the beast, 
They've already sealed their destination. And there is no repentance in that matter. No repentance in that matter. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it for the tribulation time very much so true. If they'll stay true to the Lord, if those that would come to know him as their Messiah stay true to the Lord through those times, though they will not bow down, they lose their life. In essence, they're saving their life. Amen? In essence, they're going to be able to keep and retain life. That is an eternal life. And so the angel is persuading them to worship not an image, but to worship God. Worship the creator of all things. He says the creator, God, the one he speaks even in scripture in verse number seven, the one that's created the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. It's important to denote just take us back a little bit. If you go back to Revelation 8, the first four trumpets that sounded, they sounded and these four things, heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of waters, were judged by the first four trumpets that came in Revelation chapter number 8. Whenever we get to Revelation chapter number 16, the first four vials or the first four bowls, judgments, are going to be judging these four things, heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of the waters. And so what the writer, the angel's trying to convey to those that live on the earth of that day is that none of these things, the heaven, the earth, the sea, or the fountains of water, none of them are sources within themselves, but they're all created entities by God. And so if you're going to be worshiping anything, trusting in anything, then you need to trust in the ultimate source. And that source is God. And the message of the angel is also the message of Romans 1. If you've ever read Romans 1, the message of Romans 1 is very plain. Don't worship and serve the creature or the created more than the creator. Because that had been the pitfall of the Israelites for years, fallen prey to worshiping things that have been created rather than the one who had created them. Putting more value in the creation than the creator, E.W. Bullinger in his commentary on Revelation said this, speaking of idolatry, he said, idolatry was not a mere sin into which people gradually sunk, but it was a satanic device into which people rose in order to gratify the lust of the flesh under the cloak of religion. I'd even say today, uh, this idea and concept in our world being taught and propagated even more as time goes on, the idea of the evolution of our world, the evolution of our world and its existence denies the Bible truth of the creator. Mm -hmm. The way that it's taught concerning the evolution or the existence of our world coming into place denies the existence of a creator. But I understand through God's word that, that natural theology tells me that both here in Revelation and also earlier in Romans alluded to that man has a conscience, do we not? We have a conscience that can discern by the things that are around us that there was a creator. There was a creator. And therefore, if there is a creator, then that creator needs to be worshipped. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest. In the Greek, it means apparent. Because that which may be known of God is apparent in them. For God has shewed it unto them. For the invisible things of him, that is the invisible things of God, 
from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the writer is saying, man all by himself has an idea, knows about God just from the things that man can see. Man knows even about some of the invisible things of God based upon just the things that are created. The scripture goes forward and tells me even that man, by just his observation of what's around him, can know about God's eternal power and his Godhead just based upon what's around him in so much that in the last days he'll be without excuse even if no one said a word to him that by the things around him he would know about a God, a creator, a master. He would know the everlasting gospel in so many words. It amazes me that it was said that even by the things around him he would know the Godhead. Now this would be a great lesson for another day. We don't have time to get real deep in this. But even by what's around him he would even know the Godhead. In, in Genesis chapter number 1 and verse 26, the, the, the popular uh, verse that is oftentimes used, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Uh, the, the answer that's all everybody's begging to look for is, well, who is God speaking to? Let us. Let us. Well, he doesn't come right out and tell us, and people are making a whole lot of stretches coming up with answers, talking about, well, he was talking to the angels. Well, how do you know that? Or some say, well, he was talking to uh, the Holy Spirit or he was talking to the Son. I'm saying some. And uh, there are others that say, well, he was using a, a majestic declaration just like a queen or king would. We, the queen of England, decide so and so forth, a majestic declaration, making a great stretch. But if you allow just what the Scripture says to interpret Scripture, there is understanding granted by what was seen because what did he make after that? He made man. He made man, where the Bible says, I believe in first, uh, I think it's First Thessalonians 5.23, don't quote it on me. He made man who is made of three parts, yet one man. Body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. Let us make man after our image, after our likeness. The question is answered in how he made man. He made man one, but with three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Amen? God, whenever we speak of God, one, but in the attribute of relationships of Father, Son, Holy Ghost, these are relationships and these are functions. I said I won't get into it, and here I am. Whenever we talk about Him being Father, that coincides with the, 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 the soul aspect of man. Because whenever Adam was created, God breathed in Him, and man became a living soul. Amen? When we look at the sun aspect, the sun aspect of God, that correlates with the body of man because the son of God, Jesus Christ, was the image, the only image of the invisible God, the Bible says. He is the image of the invisible God. He was the body. Uh-huh. He was the body of that Spirit of God that indwelt him. Whenever you talk then about the Holy Ghost, you're talking about the Spirit aspect of man, the same Spirit that moved upon the waters in Genesis 1. We see from Genesis all the way to the Re Revelation 
The Spirit is always in action. It's doing. It moved upon people of old. In the New Testament, it moved inside people. And so what we have here, what do we see through the creation of God? Man, one man, made of body, spirit, and soul that have different functions, different activities, but still one man. I understand the Godhead by what is created, that God is one. He may have Father, Son, and Holy Ghost relationships and functions, but they reside in one God and are only shown in one person, namely Jesus Christ. Amen? So the Bible says you should be able to take in your surroundings and you'll have the knowledge of the Godhead and the eternal power of God. So this everlasting gospel, sorry for the commercial, this everlasting gospel that the angel preached contains a warning. Look what he says. He isn't just talking about, you know, fear God, give glory to him and, and, and worship him, but he also has a warning. He says the hour of judgment is coming or it has come at that moment in John's vision. It's here right now. And here's something, maybe this is a little soapbox, but we present a distorted picture from pulpits if all we preach is the love of God without preaching the judgment of God. The society I live in and the voices that are speaking today preach love, preach grace, preach mercy, and we should. But you better balance the seesaw and tell them that there is a judgment to come as well. Amen. The Bible says in Jude 1 and verse number 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says this gospel of grace that's without judgment aspect or facet ends up resulting in lasciviousness so what is lasciviousness lasciviousness basically means this absence of restraint shameless conduct lasciviousness was one of those that were listed among the works of the flesh lasciviousness lasciviousness are one of those that are listed among the sins of those who are past feeling the bible says those who are past feeling commit lasciviousness they are absent of restraint you have grace without any judgment. You will come in such a manner. You, you personally will be without restraint. In other words, any country around the world, if it didn't have a court system, if there were not jails, regulations, and rules, all right, around the world, any of these states, any of these governing bodies, cities, whatever they may be, they would be in a state of anarchy if it were not for some type of judicial rule, some type of court, some type of jail. Amen. Why? Because judgment keeps things in line. Judgment keeps things in bounds. See, grace says, take your liberty. But grace balanced with judgment says, take your liberty within these perimeters. Amen. Amen. Just not a free for all in his book, in his book, uh, Francis Chan, Racing Hell, 
read this past year, he said, to put this in perspective, he said, Paul, Paul made reference to the fate of the wicked more times in his letters than he mentioned God's forgiveness, his mercy, and heaven combined. In other words, Paul, throughout his letters, was heavy on the fate of the wicked, of not lining up, more than he talked about mercy, forgiveness, and heaven combined. As a matter of fact, on Mars Hill in Acts 17, whenever he had just a little bit of time to deliver a message to those that were standing there and to share the gospel, the good news with them, do you know what Paul spoke about, in essence, in Acts 17 to them when he shared the good news and he had just a little short time to do it, plug it in? He talked about the judgment that was to come. Amen. The judgment that was to come. The second angel that we're met with this evening, he comes declaring the fall of Babylon. Now, again, this is not like that's taking place right here in Revelation chapter 14 because we read more details about the fall of Babylon and will in Revelation chapter number 18. But it's speaking about the fall of Babylon right here as though it's already a finished product, but it's still yet to come. That Babylon that came in existence as we have already studied back in Genesis 10 and 11 uh, through that man by the name of Nimrod that was known as, that city that was known as Babel. Amen. Babylon, both a city and it was also a system that we have watched through Daniel and already somewhat through the book of Revelation here. Now, Babylon was located very close to where the Garden of Eden was located. Babylon was located in the Fertile Plain and the Mesopotamia area between two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. There was Babylon. Babylon was located just south of a little to today, the present-day Baghdad and Iraq, just a little south of that. That's where Babylon was located. And so whenever the angel says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that double pronouncement is fallen, some may say, well, it, it underscores the reality or the surety of, of Babylon's destruction. And I believe, yes, that is so. However, it may also illustrate that Babylon is not just a city, not just as a city will it fall, but as a system it will fall. Or it may even attest to the fact that Babylon as a false religious system and a world governmental system will fall. In, in Revelation 14, this is the first time that we've had the mention of Babylon here in Revelation. And it's been a system. It's been brooding ever since the beginning of time. It's been brooding. Amen. And it may indicate to us if it's going to fall that Babylon may in fact be rebuilt someday. And to certain degrees, it already has. Prior to the war of Iraq in 2003, there was an ongoing effort to rebuild Babylon in honor of Saddam Hussein as a ceremonial city. As a matter of fact, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon and the palace that he even cast a coin with his likeness, his image upon it, and the image of Nebuchadnezzar next to it, who was the original ruler of Babylon. These things are documented. And so some suspect that the rebuilding of the ancient city of Babylon could even possibly serve as the capital city of the Antichrist in the last days. Who knows? But again, more details concerning this will come up in chapter number 8 concerning Babylon in its fallen state. In verse 8 in Revelation 14, 
and talking about this great city Babylon, it begins to talk of it as the female gender, she, her. You notice that. It says Babylon, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In Revelation 17, 18, the Bible states these words. The woman, this is the whore, the harlot of Revelation 17, which thou sawest in that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. It seems that the Babylon of the time of the end will be a great city, also known as the whore or the harlot. The Bible says she made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In Revelation 17, 4, it even depicts that it is a golden cup that she'll have in her hand, that they'll be made to drink the wine of her wrath. The reason why that's somewhat important because a golden cup, that being pictured as a golden cup that she held in her hand, is a very familiar symbol in Babylonian secret societies, a golden cup. And she made all nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. And note, it is the wine of the wrath of her fornication. No doubt she's going to, in a certain degree, Babylon whether it be the city or the system, the religious system and the world government system, are going to intoxicate, we might call it, the nations around the world to participate in her lewdness, to participate in her, quote-unquote, fornication. It also brings them, if they do that, if they partake of her wine, then they are going to be subjected to God's wrath because of their participation. That's what the Scripture bears out. If they're going to participate with her, then they're going to suffer the wrath of God. The Bible says in Revelations 14 and verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. So Babylon has made all nations to drink her wine. And so God says, if you're going to drink her wine, you're going to have to drink the wrath of my wine. And note that the Bible says that the wrath of God's cup is without mixture. The reason being, whenever, most part, most instances, whenever you see the word wine in Scripture, it is speaking about a mixed wine. It's a mixed wine. A lot of times they had uh, portions uh, of grapes that were very, very dried and compressed, and they put that in large volumes of water, and what it was was a weak wine. What it was was a wine that basically had no alcoholic content to make a person drunk. It's mixed wine. But God's saying, I'm going to pour out my wrath and it's going to be without mixture. In other words, it's not going to be diluted. It's going to be full of intensity. It's not going to be watered down. My wrath's not going to be watered down. All up until this point, there's been a lot of mercy of God interjected in his judgment. But God's saying there's coming a day. There's not going to be no mixture of mercy. Not going to be any mixture of grace. It's going to be undiluted. No drop of water. It's not going to be tame. You're going to feel the bite, if you will, of my wrath. As a matter of fact, in Revelations 15, each of the final bowls or vials of judgment comprises, the Bible says, a portion of the final cup of God's wrath. In Revelations 15 and 1, uh, it starts out speaking this, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up, or might I say completed, the wrath of God. 
all the completeness of the wrath of God will be in those seven vials or those seven bows of wrath that will come in the very last day. And they will be without mixture. So if you're going to drink of the wine and going to be enticed with the fornications of the whore, all right, the false religion and the false world uh, government, then you're going to have to be made to drink of God's wrath. Amen. Without any mixture, it's going to be straight. It's not going to be tame. So this in part is what the third angel comes talking about. That third angel coming talking about the consequences of them that worship the beast and worship and take the mark of the beast. If you take any part, if there, if there was uh, Jews living in that day, and there will be, if, if they take any part of the system of the Antichrist, again, you are doomed. You are doomed. And listen, it's not like, well, if you worship the beast, you're doomed, or if you took the mark, you're doomed. No, it's if you bowed to the beast, or if you took the mark, or the name, or the number of the name, and the hand, or the forehead, it doesn't matter. You take part in any of that. You are doomed. You're irredeemable. Irredeemable. Even though, even though they've not yet died, they take the mark, their destiny is sealed for the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though they may not yet be dead, there is no changing or alteration after they have done these things. And so the third angel comes. And the third angel is speaking then about what's going to happen, the consequences of these people in verse number 10, that cup of his indignation. Look what the Bible says. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And in verse 11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night. All those that worship the beast, his image, or whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And so this third angel comes declaring a message of the consequences and the consequences supporting this, an eternal punishment. Because let me tell you, folks, there's a lot of ideas today that people think that there is not going to be eternal punishment. A lot of people believe they're going to go to hell, they're going to die, and it's going to be over. Not according to Scripture. It will be eternal punishment. Amen. Not just a burn up, die, and over type of thing. Verse 11 says, the smoke of that torment is continuing forever and ever. Literally in the Greek, it means into the ages of ages. I learned that that's the strongest ex expression of eternity that the Greek has capable of expressing eternity for ages and ages. If there's going to be smoke of torment going up forever and ever, somebody must be being tormented forever and ever. For that matter, in the Gospels of Mark 9, Hell is described three times in that chapter as a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now, at different places in Scripture, throughout the Bible, humanity, man, is described as a worm. In Job 25, 6, Psalms 22, 6, Isaiah 41, 14. Man, humanity, is described as a worm. He says, their worm, man, humanity, dieth not. The fire is not Quench. So, well, others say, well, brother, he said, if, 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 if the soul is eternally burning in hell, then they'll experience eternal life because they're living and they're burning. 
Eternal life is reserved for the saved. If they're burning eternally in hell and the smoke is ascending up forever and ever or eternity, ages into ages, that's not eternal life. That's eternal death. Uh-huh. That's eternal dying. Continuously always dying but never achieving death. Amen. I don't want no part of that. <laughs> That's the reason we say, you're going to spend eternity somewhere? Mm-hmm. You're going to live forever somewhere? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we're in our preparation room now for wherever that somewhere is. Amen. In chapter, in this chapter 14, we, we come upon and I didn't never mention the first one, but we will we'll now at this juncture in the road. In verse 13 of this chapter, we come upon, Revelation has some beatitudes. You remember Matthew 5, blessed is this, blessed is that, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are they that mourn, blah, 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 blah. Well, Revelation really has some beatitudes. The first beatitude that it ever had was back in chapter 1 where it said, blessed is he that readeth this book. Remember the blessing that comes with, uh-huh, if you read or hear someone teach, you're being blessed tonight. You remember that? Well, we come to the second beatitude here in this chapter, in verse 13, 14, 13 rather, chapter 14, verse 13. It said, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. There's seven beatitudes actually in Revelation. I'll go on and mention the others, and maybe I'll call your memory back to them when we actually get to them. But the third one is, blessed is he that watcheth. The fourth, blessed are they which are called. The fifth, blessed and holy is he that hath part. The sixth, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings. And number seven, blessed are they that do his commandments. All those are still yet in front of us in our study in the book of Revelation. But in verse 13, it said, blessed are the dead. Now, isn't that real comforting? <laughs> blessed are the dead. Now, you didn't know you was, it was a blessing to be dead, did you? But blessed are the dead. And so the question that immediately comes to our mind is, why is it such a blessing to be dead? And so there's two reasons that are given in the text. First of all, first reason that we'll read here in the text is because it's a bless, blessed are the dead because of how they lived. Number two, blessed are the dead because of how they died. All right? The blessed are the dead because of how they lived is found in the 12th verse of this chapter. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep or literally guard the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. All right? Blessed are the dead for how they lived. Amen? The, the dead that are blessed are the ones that lived like this, that have kept the commandments, guarded the commandments, guarded and kept the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, howbeit I know uh, just us even here today, not even speaking perhaps of the Jews that the, the, the seven years of tribulation is actually for, but the saints in general, I understand we endure some things in this life, don't we? But none of us are going to have to endure like the Jews that travel through the seven years of tribulation and what they're going to have to endure through those tribulation times. But there's a sense of understanding then with Romans 8, 18, the apostle said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
which shall be revealed in us. Amen. So if I can say, blessed are the dead for how they lived, keeping and guarding the commandments of God and the faith of God. If I say this tonight, to every person that has been tempted to abandon the commandments of God, for every person that has been tempted to depart from the faith, wait, because the patient of the patience of the saints that keep obeying, keep defending, keep guarding the commandments, stay true to the faith is that when they die, blessed are the dead that are in the Lord. It takes patience. You go endure some things. Go have some heartaches. Everything's not always going to go your way, but the patience of the saints is this. Hold on. Keep with it. Stay true. Hold fast that which is true. Because blessed is they that die in the Lord. And that is the second reason for the blessing. Not just how they lived, but how they died. The denotation is this, which die in the Lord. Didn't say blessed are the dead in general, wicked and the not wicked, but blessed are the dead which are in the Lord. Let me tell you, there is not going to be any blessing to those that are not in the Lord. In death. Mm-hmm. Don't say amen. The Bible says in Psalms 116 and verse 15, we use this oftentimes in funerals and eulogies concerning the saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Consider the contrast, if you will, just right here in the book of Revelation. Consider the contrast between those who die in the Lord, all right, and those who die without the Lord, all right? Because according to verse number 13, those that die in the Lord, the Bible says that they may rest from their labors, the Bible says. But in verse number 11, those who took the mark of the beast, worship the beast, the number, the name, all right, of the beast. The Bible says in verse 11 that in that indignation, in that torment, the Bible plainly says that they have no rest day nor night. Whenever they die without the Lord, they think they're out of their sorrow out, because we all, Saved and unsaved have pains and sorrows upon this world. But it doesn't stop if you die without the Lord. Doesn't stop if you die without the Lord. It just escalates. There's more sorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's never going to end. Never going to stop. But as you suffer through this life and you have your little humdrums and your little problems that they're really little in the sight of God and you die in the Lord... You rest at that moment in time from your labor. You rest at that moment in time from your suffering. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more tears. If you die in the Lord, you rest from your labors, the Bible says. Uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about, folks. Amen. And know what the Scripture says concerning those that die in the Lord. They rest from their labors. They've been laboring. They rest from their labors and... Their works do follow them. 
the word follow, that was translated follow, according to the Greek, also means accompany. Those who die in the Lord, they rest from their labors and their works. Accompany them. Now, we not, might not be able to take material goods with us, right? Might not be able to take cars and riches and things of that nature, although people stuff them in their coffins and caskets. Might not be able to take material things into the presence of the Lord, but you will be able to bring your works, deeds, and labors. God told him in Hebrews, he said, your labor of love will not be forgotten. He says, in that you do labor and minister unto the saints. He says, that labor of love will not be forgotten. Now listen to me, listen to me. Now you may not be saved, or you might not be able to earn salvation with your works. You listening to me? But we won't show up in the presence of God without any work. Somebody hearing me. Mm-hmm. He said, your works will accompany you. They will follow you. They'll be there with you. If you'll stand with me here this evening, we'll try to finish up next week on this chapter and maybe include 15, because 15 is a small little chapter. You might want to read it. It's a small little chapter, just eight verses. So we might have to rope it in through the ending here of Revelation 14. Amen. Tonight. I need Brother Al. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.